0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Paul Barclay, coming to you from NAM, the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation.
2: On this, Big Ideas, how to age well and what gets in the way. The most important thing older people have told us is having something to do, and in fact, what residential aged care does is strip off all those things you did the day you move in, strips them off you, and doesn't replace them with anything else except a bit of entertainment. We've all found the odd person who's done well in residential care, and in fact, I visit residential care a lot, and when I do, it's quite common for management to trot out a resident who's doing well. But if you duck around the corner let me tell you, you can find hundreds that aren't. So on the whole, we've got to keep saying this is not a good service model. And if we want a different one, this is going to be not about the reform program we've currently got, which fixes up what we've currently got, but but a transformation program. And we can talk about how you do transformation, but it's a very different process that starts with a blank sheet and designs something from the point of view of a good, frail life, and how would you provide care?
1: That's Dr Mike Rungi, who was once the CEO of ACH Group, a residential aged care provider. These days, he believes residential aged care needs to be entirely rethought. As we age, we want to retain our independence, keep working, volunteering and learning, remain active and engaged in the world. Being connected to our communities is also important, even if we appreciate there may be some physical limitations compared with our younger years. But how do we overcome the barriers to living a good life into older age? Barriers like ageism and an aged care sector and public policy in need of reform. What needs to change? What should older people do to empower themselves? And what does ageing well, as we call it, even look like? I'm at the Australian Association of Gerontology National Conference in Adelaide, and as well as Mike Runge, who's currently Director of the Global Centre for Modern Ageing, I'm talking to Professor Nairi Kurse, Joyce Cook Chair in Ageing Well at the University of Auckland, and President of the New Zealand Association of Gerontology. Professor Peter Bragg, Director of Health Programs for Monash University's Sustainable Development Institute's Behaviour Works, and Dorinda Hafner. An author, speaker, TV chef, artist, marriage celebrant and more besides. A woman who lives life with a verve and energy we could all learn from. This discussion was recorded late last year. So Mike, you draw the short straw. I'm going to come to you first of all. Uh, This idea about ageing well, we talk
2: about it often. What do we mean? Think of yourself as an apple. You spend your whole life growing into this big, red, delicious, juicy thing, and then the day after you get there, you're overripe and start rotting. And it used to be that you fell off the tree quite quickly and became good compost for the tree and the birds ate you and then they spread the seed around. Now we hang on the tree for 30 years. So the question is, what do you focus on for 30 years? And there are two options. One is that you focus on rotting well. And that's the easy option and the one the empire would have us do. Or you can focus on thriving well, or as Nairi said yesterday, flourishing well. And that's the one where you give back to the tree and have some fun along the way and get creative. And that's the one we want.
1: You know the aged care sector pretty well too, Mike, because uh, you held senior roles in it. What conclusions have you drawn over all of those decades of working in that sector about how much it contributes or gets in the way of the type of ageing well that you just spoke about.
2: Again, it's a good question. It, It seems at the top of the hierarchy of the things that are about thriving well, and really, we should stop using this ageing well thing. It is, it is language of the empire. It's biology. It's not a denial that it's happening. It simply asks you to focus on the kind of things that aren't aspirational. Uh, the, the, the focus is important because the focus drives—it drives your aspiration. It drives service models. It drives language. Um, it it drives attitude, right? So getting the focus right is not mutually exclusive. You just get it right. So what happens in aged care? It it is a place where people are seen as people you care for. And in fact, aged care, does, despite everything it says, does the caring quite well. But if, if thriving well is about having roles and about doing things and contributing, it's important to know two things. One is that doesn't stop when you get frail. It might be harder to imagine. It doesn't stop when you get frail. And aged care makes pretty well no contribution in that space. And in fact, the price for moving into residential care is you will suffer 20 losses that aren't about your frailty that will actually cause you to lose most of the ability to even do and enjoy those things. Um, It seriously needs to be transformed into something else.
1: And we'll talk more about that. It's an important point. Uh, Dorinda, I want to come to you next. You look like you're 35, but uh, your Wikipedia entry suggests that's not the case. Uh, what's your secret? How do you keep yourself so alive and, and energetic?
3: First of all, I'm probably the only living woman who's younger than her children. And I take enormous pride in that. I go by the philosophy of the MEP, I call it MEP, Mental, Emotional, and Physical. And mentally, I found that uh, if I keep learning different languages, because I want to keep my mental faculties alive, if I keep learning different languages and talking to people in languages that they least expect me to, my, my brain keeps working. So I go to people and speak to them in Hungarian, and they're quite shocked to see this black face sprout in Hungarian, which I loved, yeah. You know, and I do things like all Greek or Italian, stuff like that. And then emotionally, I connect with people. I connect in particular with younger people. I have a lot of young friends. And I told them, don't call me grandma. Call me Grammy D. That's more funky. So call me Grammy D. And so so I connect with them. And they tell me about the latest songs and stuff like that. And every so often, I'll go dancing with them. And then the physical side, I carry on doing hydrotherapy. I go three times a week. I love it. I can't swim because I'm an African. We don't swim, you know what I mean? So I go in the water and I don't want my joints to start reminding me of the fact that I'm over there. So I go in the water and I exercise and I jog in the water. And I tell people in the water, I'm going to Melbourne. So they should travel with me on foot. And uh, it's enormous fun, and you put on um, dancing, and uh, I go and do aqua zumba as well. So I find ways to engage myself, and I try and see if I can read at least one book a month. I'm very busy, but I try and read it one book a month, and that's how I do it.
1: They sound like a great bunch of ingredients for keeping young. Nairi, what, what does living well into your 80s look like from the perspective of a GP and researcher like yourself?
4: Well, I have to say it's a huge privilege to be a GP because you see uh, the full range of abilities. So we have people marching in who are playing the stock market, doing the Times crosswords, running marathons in their 80s. Um, and you also have people who are relatively young but are very disabled. So it's a huge privilege to span that that uh, diversity. So living well to me for people that I try to talk to them about is, is maintaining their ability to make their own choices, making their own choices, working out what their goals are. i oh, spend quite a lot of time talking uh, about intrinsic ageing. We all expect that we're going to slow down, that we're going to be sitting more. Expect that, oh, that sore knee is actually arthritis, it's been overused, stop using it. So there's a lot of already assumptions there that need to be challenged. So I was pleased to meet my uh, my colleague who'd had a bad knee like mine and he'd gone from having a bad knee to back to running at least uh, you know three to five k's a day. So there's lots of things that you can do and you shouldn't expect to stop doing things. So I talk about goals, expectations, if people are going to retire, I talk about what they're going to do when they're retiring. They should practice what they're going to do before they retire so they don't suddenly become overcome with too much time on their hands. But I totally enjoy looking after older people. I think that, you know, we've got to make our societies and our governments actually be much more inclusive of older people. It's all about connection making, inclusion, being individuals, also being part of a collective
1: And Peter, there are barriers to aging well, and the the barriers can be both structural and institutional, like the failings of of aged care, and they can be individual. They can be poor diet, lack of exercise and so on. And overcoming those barriers comes down to changing behavior. This is your area and behavior change, long-term permanent behavior change is, I think we all know, tough. What are the best ways to bring about the behaviour changes that we need? What works and what doesn't?
0: Yeah, it's a $64 question and everyone who's in the audience listening to this show will have tried to do something differently, whether it's a diet, whether it's exercise, the New Year's resolutions that are on average broken by about January the 22nd every year. And so we know that behaviour change is very hard. And I think, um, just picking up on what Yari was saying about assumptions, behaviour change science is about testing assumptions and being quite specific about what we want to do differently and what might get in the way. And at an individual level, that can be variable. So for some people... Exercising might be something that they have fears about, for example, if they're getting a little bit older and they're worried about their heart health, they might find it socially they would prefer to exercise with others, but they don't know how to make those connections. And so in most of the behaviours that we want to change, the approach that we take is to be quite specific about working out for an individual, what are the things that are going to make that easier and harder, and checking our assumptions as we do that. And how much capacity
1: do we have to change as we get older? Because the stereotype is that we become so fixed in our ways. The, you know, it's, it's that old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Terrible saying, actually. Do we retain
0: the capacity to change our behaviour? I think we do. I think, um, again, getting back to assumptions about, you know, there are people who get their PhDs in their 90s, right? And there are people in their 20s who are very inactive. So... The first assumption is not to assume that everything gets harder when you're older, but to recognise that behaviour change is equally challenging no matter how old or young you might be. And the barriers and the things that make it easier will be different as well. So I think, you know, obviously there are some physical things that are less possible as you age, but there are notable exceptions, uh, including (laughs) one sitting next to me. So I think that's one of the first assumptions we have to check is that just because you're getting older, there are things that you can't do or that you can't do when modified. Yeah.
1: There are these places, uh, Mike, that you've referred to and that are known as blue zones. Uh, These are places where people live longer and healthier and happier lives. I think some of us would be familiar with Ikaria in Greece very famous for the longevity of its citizens. What, what are some of these blue zones and, and what can we learn from them? What, what are they doing right that could help us improve our lives?
2: so the Blue Zone research has been around for a fair while now. These places you quite rightly talk about are spread all over the world. They are places where people live longer and the research is now very clear about much happier, but why would you be surprised? They're culturally very different, but they do have some things that are very much in common and and those things are that people as they age have ability to flow into roles, new roles, very important, that they've got good access to fresh, locally produced food, um, and that their lifestyle, the way they live, requires them to actually move to live in the places. Now, now that's very new. We all knew that and we know, know that there and we certainly don't need any more research to tell us that. But what's interesting about the Blue Zones is we know it and they know it, they do it and we don't. Right, so that's the question that really you're asking Peter about. What is it that's causing behaviour modification here? And what they've found is that people in blue zones largely don't set goals. We resist setting goals, and when we do, we largely fail them. They don't set goals that they build into their communities and into their personal lives and into their social lives, these things they call nudges. These are things that kind of nudge you towards the good behaviour. So your doctor tells you to walk more, you can set the goal, give it a miss every time it's raining or you can't be bothered or you're busy or whatever, don't feel like it, or you can buy a dog. And the dog, in a sense, becomes a nudge because now you've got to walk that dog twice a day. And what we've found is if you you put older people in a room and you say, these are the behaviours we want to drive, the good behaviours, you to invent nudges that would nudge you towards them. But in fact, people have no trouble designing a lot of nudges that are actually quite cheap and fun to do. So it, it's nudges we need to move towards and away from this notion of you need to do something.
1: I mean, when you think about some of those places in the Mediterranean, like Sardinia and Icaria and, and so on, and you, I mean, I visited some of these parts of the world and, uh, you know, there is something about, the villages, the food, the connectedness of everything that makes, you know, they're walkable places. Can you retrofit that into the way in which our cities and suburbs have developed in Australia?
2: Well, sometimes, yes, but probably very often, no. But I think the really important point is that when we sat groups of older people around tables and said, these are the behaviours we want to drive, you invent the nudges, that they invented all kinds of nudges, cheap and fun. In fact, honestly, one of the sessions I laughed most at was older people inventing nudges to drive them to thriving well behaviours, right? So, and these are not expensive. So, we, we pass those back to government and say, hey, build these into the way you design things. We pass them to groups of people. We pass them to individuals. Now, your point is, could we design cities and suburbs and houses and things much better to have nudges in them? Absolutely. But don't ever hear that that's the only way we can get there. Mm. Uh, Dorinda, just looking at
1: the many things you've done in, in your life, I just wonder whether you think that you know, you started off being trained as a nurse in in London years ago. Practiced as a nurse in various nursing capacities. You seem to have reinvented yourself over the years in many in many different ways. I was talking to somebody uh, in the room today about how you married them. You were the marriage celebrant at their wedding. Do Do you think this reinvention, this continual, you're not satisfied with just staying in the one place, doing the one thing? that that's also helped to keep your attitude much more alive and open to new possibilities?
3: Absolutely. I don't, I don't uh, define myself as old. I, mean, I don't do age. I do image for a start because age is a number. And I've come from a culture where age has never been an issue because uh, in Australian society, I notice that we don't respect our elders enough. We are only too keen to palm the buff into old people's homes and stuff like that. There are no old people's homes in Ghana, where I come from, in most parts of Africa, except maybe southern Africa uh, Zimbabwe, and, you know, where there like, more Anglo-Saxon people living. But uh, because we see old people as having a role to play in schools. I noticed some Scandinavian schools and recently in, in Sydney and places like that, they're bringing the old people and the young people together. So it's a question of mindset. If you think you're old, you will be old. I tell my body, we are too busy to age. We don't have time. We've got things to do, places to go, people to annoy. See, so when I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, naked, as I came on this earth. Starkest. I look at myself from head to toe. Then I turn to my left side, take a good look. Then the right side, take a good look. Then I say, oh God, it's not fair in the rest of the world. And then I go out there. So already your mind is set in a positive zone. So when you go out there, somebody calls, oh dear, or refer to an old person, you don't turn around because you're not one of them. See, I tell you what, in my swimming pool, when I go do do the exercise, there was a man there, and every week he would complain, every week. And I felt sorry for him, poor thing. He he had a lot of arthritis and he was in a lot of pain, and I empathized with him. And then he said to me, my dear girl, when you get to my age, you know what it's like. My dear, it is horrible. So I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 62. And I thought, shall I burst his bubble? <laughs> now I thought, "Dorinda, don't be wicked. I didn't want to tell him that I'm 75 years old. I didn't want to make him feel bad. So I just said, yes, I'm still waiting to get to 50. And hopefully I'll get there and I will not feel half this pain. Yeah. It's a, a mindset.
1: It's a number. You're exactly right. right. It's a That's number right. that means nothing. But did you want to jump in, Peter? Or
0: Well, I think I think this is uh, playing into some of the other behavioral influences beyond the individual, like social norms. And so it's a bit like when you become a parent. Everyone tells you the horrible things about you're never going to sleep again. You won't be able to go out to dinner again. And uh, people do have a tendency not to share the positive things that are sort of the flip side of all those things. And at scale, those social influences and norms can become quite an influence on your behaviour because you think about yourself the way you see yourself represented. So, if older people are always represented as frail, unable to move, then they become to think of that their future. And similarly, parents, if they always think of themselves as sleep deprived, changing nappies, then you, it does influence the way you see yourself. This is the negativity that's built into the ageist
1: stereotypes that are just everywhere in, a, in our society, really.
3: Yeah, but also, I mean, I, I don't say that just because um, you're, you have to think about the positive things. There are no negatives. There are aches and pains. Believe you me, sometimes you go to bed normal and you wake up with aches and pains. Now, what I, I'm saying is that try and see the glass half full, yeah. not half empty. So embrace your pain. I do get pain. And I said to him, Guess why? Because this has lived a long time. It's done a lot of things. It's worn out. So it's starting to show the amount of work it's done. But that doesn't mean it's dead. It's still got a few more miles to go. So I prefer, yes, I prefer to look at it that way than to say, Well, it's so tired and so old, it can't do it.
2: I mean, we think that that about 20% of older Australians make this difficult transition from midlife to older life. It's as hard as an Olympic athlete deciding to retire. It's a very difficult transition. And we think about 20% make it quite well under their own steam and about 80% don't. And so we think it is time that there be some kind of teaching of how you make life difficult life transitions and giving people the skills that you've somehow managed to capture yourself. And and that's what Chip Conley does with the Modern Elder Academy. It it effectively says people go into their older lives with their midlife mindset, which worked quite well for them in the past, and they go in there and wonder why it's not working anymore. So he just says, ditch your old mindset and get a new one.
4: Well, well, let's just think about those social patternings that we talked about in the blue zones, in those blue zone areas, the social patterning is to always be active. They always see the people who are 90 still working, still walking up in their very steep places too. We have to make put some hills in Adelaide and some... And so the lots of physical activity, lots of homegrown food. So we have to now change our social patterns from the beginning. We have to get our children to see our elders as being valuable so that when they get to be elders, they will see themselves as valuable and, and continue... Contributing. Older people want to contribute, but our society, the way it's structured, constrains them from doing that because there's no expectation from society that they have any value. So we have to, you know, take ageism full on and we have to call it
3: out at every opportunity before we're going to see any change. For instance, I forget things like everybody else. You walk into a room and think, why am I here? Where am I going? Sometimes you're in the car, you're driving. Now, I said to my grandchildren, I said, look, the, 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 that that brain in there is a computer. It needs defragging from time to time. It's got so much information in there, it's a fool. So you've got to help me defrag it. So sometimes when it hasn't been defragged, I need you to help me, okay? So I don't give them the impression that it's something negative, you know? <laughs> it's something positive. They work with computers. That computer needs help. That's it. So, Nairi,
1: I mean, you're a doctor and the tendency with people involved in medicine is to talk about all of the medical related stuff that's going to help you as you age. But there is a lot of non-medical stuff out there that could be contributing to us living a better life, right? How do we, how do we make the built environment, our infrastructure more compatible with an aging population? And, and, and the fact that it's not compatible. Does that in itself tell us something about totally. how deeply embedded ageism it, is?
4: Totally. It's really embedded within pretty much every every way our societies are constructed. So we had a great talk just uh, the plenary before about the lived environment and how the picture of downtown Adelaide is full of young people. If you had a picture of it to be full of older people, you might structure it differently. There might be smaller spaces. There might be places to take a rest. There might be much more green space. Um, And our houses that we live in, in general, they're built to be efficient too close together, not enough um, light, not enough green space, not enough places to be able to, the, the, I guess the, the talk was about the climate change um, aspects of that, but actually the lived environment and how comfortable people are in their, in their own houses is really, really important. And then of course, I had the huge opportunity and privilege of growing up in small country towns and down the deepest, darkest places of the South Island of New Zealand. And in those villages, the care home was right there. So the school was in and out of the care home all the time. So the families were in and out of the care home. So those people were still part of their communities. That connection and that being part of their communities, lost that with
3: their care homes and our ways we look after older people
4: in our cities now.
3: A lot of insurances, have you noticed how they always say they stopped at 70 or 65, if you're over 65, you know, you're bound for the pasture. You know, they won't insure you, like you You got one foot in the grave. Why do they stop? These things are designed to give old people inferiority complex. Like you feel like you've passed your use by date. You need a stamp. Try renting a car if you're over 80.
4: That's so, right. So my dad and my auntie went to Tasmania and there they are and they front up and auntie, aunt Elizabeth's 82. And she says, oh, yes, I'm here to rent my car. And the lady behind the desk looks at us and she says, oh, you're 82. And Elizabeth said, I'm 82. And um, then the lady said, well, we're not allowed to rent to people over 75. There you go. So this was a huge issue. And so then the next thing, Dad and Elizabeth can hear her on the phone in the back saying, Oh, she looks very sprightly, and she has got her driver's license. <laughs> in the end, they rented it to her, and off they went. But the negative impact of that on my auntie—I mean, would she? I mean, she's never going to exactly. rent a car again. Exactly.
1: It yes. should—it should actually be against the law. I would have thought it's—it's it's, discrimination, it's discrimination, isn't that's right. it? Uh, Peter, can I bring you in? You—you've uh, this year been the AAG's Glenda Powell travelling fellow. Uh, you've been travelling around giving workshops on co-design. Involving people in the designing process, helping them to design the services and policies and buildings that they get to access and live in. Who'd have thought, hey, that it might be a good idea to talk to people about what they like, how it would work for them, and then follow. But I think co-design is a bit more complicated than that. Talk a bit about how co-design works. So we get a group of people in the room, we talk about, and then how
0: do we get the outcomes from that process that we all want. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think co-design, as I've learned, as I've actually been able to travel this year, I've been the Glenda Powell Travelling Fellow, which has been fantastic, is one of those terms that is used a lot, but rarely defined. And when you use a term and don't define it well, you create the potential for a mismatch between expectations. And uh, co-design has been around in health research for 40 or 50 years. But a recent analysis of all of that literature found that you know, out of 1,000 studies, only a third of them had actually defined co-design. So, that's the, first, that's the first hurdle. And I think one way to think about co-design is about meaningful involvement in, as you said, building something together, designing a service, designing a policy, a guideline, a physical building. And there are things that are not co-design that are also important. But where people get frustrated is where they think they're part of designing or building something, but they're actually not. In other words, they don't know what's on the table and what's off the table. So,
1: well, let's, let's look at a specific example. Yep. Residential aged care facilities. Right. I know of nobody who looks forward to the day when they get to move into a residential aged care facility. Actually. I want to. You want to? I'm going to enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. Really?
4: Yes, because it's going to be fantastic by then.
3: Oh, okay.
1: Well, that's optimistic.
3: No. no. The
1: response I get from people is, and this is seriously the response I get from people, I would rather die than go into one of those places.
3: One of those. I just
1: want
4: to challenge that. Because I've looked after lots of people in care homes. And once they get in there, you have conversations with them. They have fantastic stories they tell you. They have things that they want to contribute and they continue to. They don't want to die, they want to live until they die.
1: So, my point is that you're right. They're not, need not be inherently bad places. That's where I was going with you, Peter. Mm. How do we get? the co-design process that you're talking about resulting in facilities that people don't feel scared
0: of having to move into when they get older? Yeah, so one of the most frustrating things about co-design when it's done poorly is too little, too late. So, you know, if you're seeking feedback on something that's already been designed or built and just saying, where do you want the furniture? That's different from designing it from the start. So our Indigenous peoples, have a phrase about nothing about us without us. And they are very sophisticated in the way that they don't really engage if you've already gone a certain way down the pathway, because that's not co-design. That's ticking it off at the end. And so, I mean, uh, to cut a long story short, you you have to imagine The possibilities of involving people earlier but the tricky thing about co-design is that you really need to be brave enough to respond to what they're saying so we're co-designing this radio program now we don't know what we're going to say in the next half hour we're all participating we're all responding to what each other says if Paul went and interviewed us all separately and compiled a program that wouldn't be co design It would be a good program, but we would be collaborating in a different way. So the tricky thing about co-design is to do it well, you have to take quite a lot of risks and you have to challenge a lot of assumptions. Um, Adol Gawande, who's a great medical writer from the New York Times, has written in several books, talks about some really simple assumptions we make about institutionalised care. So why does everyone suddenly have to get up at nine in the morning and be dressed and have breakfast? just because they're in an institution. Why can't someone who's in their 80s have an extra bowl of ice cream even though they've got diabetes? These are the assumptions that need to be challenged from the start and then we can begin to design those sorts of experiences that you talk about. And there are
4: some good examples of care home uh, design and management which are organised that way. Did you do those changes before you left the sector?
2: Yes, we did but it is very, very difficult to do because of the view that people have about what a good frail life looks like. And in fact, when if I was to ask you all now, what do you think a good frail life is? It, it is it's interesting that I'd be interested to hear the results, but our research, the research that was done in, in co-designing the new Strathalbyn Aged Care Facility, went out and talked to a whole lot of people before they moved into residential care and asked them what their lives were like and what they would want to change if they moved into residential care. And effectively said, when I get older and frailer, I don't drop my aspirations. I will be the same kind of person and I do want the same kind of life, maybe less of it and and certainly a lot more care built into it. But they told us that they want care provided in a way that facilitates them to continue to live a life that does have reasonable quantities of stuff in it. And what we found is that residential aged care on the whole doesn't do that. So people come into it and in fact lose all those things as they come in. The most important thing older people have told us is having something to do. And in fact, what residential aged care does is strip off all those things you did the day you move in, strips them off you and doesn't replace them with anything else except a bit of entertainment. Now, we've all found the odd person who's done well in residential care. And in fact, I visit residential care a lot. And when I do, it's quite common for management to trot out a resident who's doing well. But if you duck round the corner, let me tell you, you can find hundreds that aren't, right? So on the whole, we've got to keep saying, despite your very positive experiences, we've got to keep saying, on the whole, this is not a good service model. And if we want a different one, it's, it, this is going to be not about the reform program we've currently got, which fixes up what we've currently got, but, but a transformation program. And we can talk about how you do transformation, but it's a very different process that starts with a blank sheet and designs something from the point of view of a good frail life and how would you provide care to a good frail life. Let me just finish by saying I've now asked dozens of aged care providers if they could tell me what a good, frail life looks like. And there might be someone in the room who can. I haven't yet found one who can tell me. And if you don't know that, you cannot provide good aged care.
1: So Dorinda's got a question, and then we can get a comment or question from Peter and, and, and
3: Nari. I have a question for you. How much consultation actually takes place with older people you know, and at what level is it more useful in your designs of uh, residential care facilities?
0: Well, it's a great question. I was I was actually just about to say the the elegant simplicity of behaviour change research and co-design is that it starts by simply talking to people and listening to what they say. And when you start to do that in behaviour change research, it, even if we were doing a project on barriers to older people going for a walk three times a week, for example, we could do as little as 15 interviews of about 15 minutes and get a reasonable sense, and science tells us you can do that, you can get a reasonable sense of the sort of factors that come into play. And I think one of the problems about the design of these services is that the things that you were just describing are just not done enough, and we're not or they're not listened to and responded to.
1: I I thought there was a good idea that you put forward, Mike, in one of the articles of yours that I read. You talk about putting a price on dependency making in the same way that we put a price on carbon to stop the burning of fossil fuels. You suggest if you put a price on aged care providers on dependency making, in other words, in creating facilities that make the people dependent on them that they should face a financial penalty for doing so and that that might help to drive the transformation of those aged care centres. Tell us a bit about that idea because I thought that was a great idea
2: actually. This really started when we started asking the question about what would happen if aged care had the same pressures on it to change that we're seeing coming now from climate change, forcing us to change, albeit not as fast as we might want, but at least we're now being forced to do it. Whereas there are no pressures on aged care to change. Right now, it's no longer. We've we've screwed it all the way we can for viability and quality outputs, and it's still not not achieving it, but still not kind of wanting to jump over the fence and change. So we started, we went back to the climate change stuff, strategies to look at them and see whether you could pick any of them up and put them over. And of course, one of the things that climate change is continually doing now is if, if you pollute the earth, increasingly you will have to pay for it. And we liked that idea and said, why don't we do that in aged care? If you make a person more dependent than they actually are and then have to provide services because they're more dependent, then you should pay for that, right? So we started. We went back into aged care and particularly into residential aged care, but also very much in home care where there are a whole lot of ways that people could be less dependent on services and more able to manage and run their own lives and found people simply not doing it. The result of that being they need more services and then as they get more of those services that costs us money but also isn't good for the people. So we just said you should charge them for it, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good example of now elevating to think about systems and population level change. And we know from successes in other areas what it takes to change systems. So let's take the example of road trauma which I've written about quite extensively. First, you need public awareness to create political pressure. Then you need ideally bipartisanship so that it's not contested like climate change was. You need a stable funding mechanism. And then you need the levers, in this case, the road laws, drink driving laws, seat belts, speed limits, things like that. And it's always a collection of things that is required over a long period of time to affect that system change. So if you've got a combination of user-driven preferences about how they want to live you've got a financial mechanism attached to a regulation. And then I think the big part of this picture is to build the public awareness of we want to age differently to how ageing is portrayed. And that's the big conversation. And in road trauma, it started with conversations about we're not happy with the amount of people who are dying on the roads. And that created the political impetus for change. So once you go beyond Individual behaviour change, exercising more. Once you're thinking about systems, you have to think about lots of different levers and how they might work together.
1: Nairi, I to just
4: want to say we've got to hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> because you know in my country there's 83,000 people over 85 now there's going to be 383 you know in the next three decades and it takes longer than that to plan design and build the facilities that we need so it's going to be a tough call and i think we've got to do whatever we can right now without actually going for the for the blank sheet to push levers. And one of the things is a huge injection of government money. I mean, there's not enough workforce. The workforce is not of the right makeup. And there's, um, you know, in my country, they even have to sometimes prescribe the butter and the cream on the clinical budget because there's not enough money in the running budget for the proper food. So, you know, we've reached this place somehow. We've got to change soon. We've got to, yes, change in the right direction, but we've got to do it by tomorrow. And, you know, thinking about the road toll, the road toll is going like this. Falls and older people are going like this. Despite all of our research and all of our knowledge about exercise and all of activation of older people, our trends are because we're going to have a huge number of older people who are wonderfully very old and flourishing, but they will need some care.
1: Dorinda, were you going to say something?
3: Oh, I was just going to say that the other thing, is that we don't seem to realize that we've put a lot of effort and finances into earlier lives and trained all these old people. Now we've moved them aside to, to, to pasture. And there's a whole lot of knowledge, expertise, willingness, and ability to actually engage with society to get some of our investment back in that way. But we're not doing it for some strange reason. I don't get it
2: yeah i mean what we we've watched over the last 50 years uh, the world understand that if we employ women we actually have more profitable businesses and better societies and they still didn't do it, right? So that this kind of rational argument that it's time the world loved older people and it gave them a good opportunity and then they will contribute and we'll have a, a more profitable and, and a better society is a good argument, but it didn't work for women and I don't know if it's going to really work for older people. So we are going to need some, as, as Nairi said, some urgent pressures Wait, 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 Mike, right wait a minute,
3: I'll stop you right there Because <laughs> I have to I don't agree with that because uh, who did we actually talk to, to engage to Return to Work? We need to engage the people who want to do it and yeah. who are able to choice. do it. We can, the be problem choice. with these sorts of rulings and laws is that there seems to, to always be a generic law for everybody, that kind of lawn, lawnmower me- mentality where everybody's got to be at the same height. You know, we have to mow them down if they stick their heads out. Mow them down because how dare they, they step outside the box. There should be proper engagement. Proper consultative process to ask the older generation. You know, there are quite a lot of us out there who are still corpus mentors. I've got news for you.
2: I'm with you. If we were going to do one bit of research, it would be to find the 20% of older Australians that have made the change to active roles, new lifestyles, and collect their stories because they invented them all themselves and then tell that story as the kind of the new story of thriving well, not ageing well. Right? And in a sense, what we're trying to do here is to create role models and to create a kind of new truth about this whole so what no, about new the, narrative. What about the 80%...? I, I, I'm interested in I, I, I that figure. I disagree
4: with you about the 80% as well. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> the, the, the the 80% of people who don't get to make the decisions and don't get to lead the life into older age that they would hope, what's gone wrong there? Do the 20%, for example, who've got it right, are they, Rich. are they richer? Do they have better superannuation? Do they have better housing? Have they had better jobs What's the differentiating factor between the 20% and the 80%? (laughs)
2: No, he's done.
4: I was just going to say they're probably all rich and white.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Rich, white white, and male. Exactly. In in fact, that's not... What we found, right? What we've, we've found, and seriously, you're asking a research question which belongs to them, right? It's the kind of research we ought to be doing. But what we found, and our stuff is pretty anecdotal, is that this is an attitude thing and that, that some people are just self-starters, they're early adopters, and we found that they are spread right across gender and socioeconomic, that they are just those kind of people.
0: So there is behaviourally we sometimes talk about segmentation of audiences so think about something like the internet you have your early adopters who were on the internet day one they've got all the latest gear they're very into tech then you might have people who have security concerns about the internet so they they have all the skills they have all the knowledge but they simply don't trust the internet and then there might be another people who can't afford access or lack the skills to do it so when we talk about population level behaviour change, we need to think about who our target audiences are. Are they the 20% that are already succeeding or are they the people who have ambitions to do other things but don't have opportunities and what do they need? So when we talk about it at the level of populations, we tend to we tend to think about some of the barriers that are quite consistent and, and some of the segments and advertisers would talk about it as market segments, but It's the same concept, is that you're trying to identify an audience or a segment of the population that needs particular attention. We've been skirting around this a little bit,
1: but how much does wealth contribute to ageing well? give you an example. In Australia at the moment, where we're going through this terrible cost of living crisis, as much of the world is, people are living in tents at the moment, because they can't afford not to buy a house, they can't afford to rent. And when they do, the rental is is insecure. And many of these people are in the category that we would define as being older older Australians. It, It is surely hard to age well if you don't have stable, affordable housing. So Michael
4: Marmot is the king of this, and so there's a longevity gap I showed in my talk earlier of 15 years between those who are wealthy and women and white and those who are in the lowest socioeconomic bracket and Māori. 15 years. That's extraordinary and unacceptable.
1: You've been doing some study on on this, your your lilac study, and we could spend the whole session talking about that, but we, we don't really have time, but you spoke to a bunch of older people, I think, in their 80s, Maori and non maori Yes, yeah, so
4: there was about half you, and half, okay, Maori and non maori Okay, just tell
1: us about the study and um, um, what so, you found. So,
4: so I want to just give you the the gist that most of them were quite independent living in the community, either by themselves. 65% of non maori women were living alone, and uh, 50% of Maori women were living alone quite well independently in the, in the community. They were c- committed and very interested in, making contributions to their grandchildren to society. They were running all of the op shops in the whole of the district let me tell you. So there was a high a high proportion of volunteering and there were very small numbers of people who were requiring care and attention and there were inequities in how they got that care and attention. But on the whole the other thing I showed that was that, that level of function, you know, everything's always a, a downhill after 85 well it's not actually. It goes like this so yes you can get better or you can get worse. We've got to let our older people in their 80 s recover and regain their function and give them, offer them opportunities for rehabilitation but you know you 've got to think about the whole of life people have had significant disadvantages they 've not been offered opportunities they 've not had the opportunity to have a stable job and build up their own housing and maintain their functions how do we make sure that all of our older people are included? And the opportunities that lead to that 20% of success, I would say it's more like 60% of success. Um, how do we even that out? I mean, that's a political uh, hot potato, uh, absolutely, but we should be having discussions about it in the context of our ageing well, or whatever you'd like to call it.
1: And just in terms of the comparison and outcomes between Maori and non were there were there differences, significant differences between... The two categories?
4: Um, So there was, we described inequities in access to um, health and social care. And in the end, there was a higher mortality rate amongst the Māori. But the Māori were more active. They were stronger. They ate different foods. Uh, They actually ate in a more healthy pattern with lots of protein and uh, more calories, um, so there were a lot of, uh, uh, you know, we want to stay away from the deficit of everything's bad about Maori. Actually, Maori have a huge opportunity and show great resilience. There was no, in my study, differential cognition deficit between Maori and non-Maori, and certainly Maori cultural practices are very stimulating. I, I wanted to say, you know, kia ora. Can you speak in Māori back to me too? No, I I have (laughs) to. We will, I will teach you.
3: Yes, (laughs) do. What do you say? So
4: that's my challenge is to to learn Māori now because we all should be learning more languages. I would like to learn the Māori
3: language. At the moment I'm trying to learn sign (laughs) language as (laughs) well.
4: That's right. (laughs) So there's huge strength and resilience and and we need to allow Māori society to to take over again.
1: Uh, I want to talk a bit about work. Work provides people with purpose not just income, although increasingly people could do with a bit more money at the moment. Uh, Mike, you're talking about the barriers to older people being able to work. One really basic barrier in Australia is that if you're on the pension, you can scarcely do any work at all before that starts to affect your pension. That is a huge disincentive for people going out to work, what should we do to change that? And I'm not talking here about forcing people back to work who don't want to work, just making it possible for those who do.
3: I'll answer that for you. I'll tell you now, pensioners are allowed to earn about up to 8000 One, well, until recently. Now, the Labour government's come in and they now said that they're going to put it up to about eleven. well, another $3,000 that you can earn. What's $3,000? And would it pay your electricity bill for the year? I mean, I don't get it. So if you stop them earning very much more and you're going to dock their pension, then there's no incentive. Why would you bother?
2: Over to you, Mike. What we do know from Michael Longhurst's research and and now Grattan and Scott and a whole lot of other people is that people seem to be happiest when they've got productive roles in their lives for about 20 hours a week and don't hear that necessarily as paid work we just heard of a whole lot of productive roles running op shops or uh, productive roles for about 20 hours a week seem to be happiest right so in a sense one of the things we're interested in doing is saying can we just provide a whole lot of options and paths for people doing that now we heard uh, joanne Earle and her team's research here yesterday talking about including career planning in retirement planning right now what a good idea you know Let, and and but make sure we keep doing it right through their retirement. They've got some follow-up work happening now so we're going to know the results of that. Right. The first bit is to, to have older people really Cherishing the idea of having a set of productive roles in their lives and not being sold the pup of this is a long holiday, I don't have to make any effort, and if I don't make any effort, then I should expect to be happy, right? And we've got to help people out of that back into the effort thing. If we want people to actually do paid work, and we do know at the moment there's a preference from some older people to do paid work even if they don't need the money because it gives them structures into productive activity that they can't find anywhere else. And then we're a lot of older people who actually want to work because it gives them the money as well. The career counselling stuff is really useful in helping older people to start to think about how they work but we've also got to convince the employers that they would want older people to working for them and that's turning out to be a hard nut to crack even right at the moment when we've got a shortage of workforce they still don't want to so they're not putting any pressure at all on government to say how about making it easier for people to work none whatsoever right it once again it's simply back to older people to push their own case because no one else. Really getting involved now. A piece of research I saw only in the last couple of days, global research that was talking about 89% of older people want flexibility in the way they work. Like, none of them seem to want to work like they did in their midlife. Why would we be surprised, right? 20% of employees offering the flexibility at the level they want, right? Now, how simple would that be to change? Yeah.
3: I mean, at the moment, we're uh, Australia's importing nurses from overseas because we're, we're short. We need more nurses. There are a lot of older nurses that I know, You know, some of my colleagues from Flinders, etc. et cetera. Et cetera They're about there. They are willing to come back and do a few hours a week to help. They, they did to come relieve back pressure, during COVID. But we're sure, not, but we'd know. rather pay the money to import more. I don't get it. And you're stealing ours too, you know, Dorenda.
4: You're stealing our
3: nurses as well, you know. It'll <laughs> well, come over the ditch in well, droves. Well, almost treat Almost the same equivalent of Australia. Well, I think there's you know? a
1: global shortage of nurses, actually. I think everyone's trying and to find, and uh, find nurses. So um, Maybe if we
3: treated them better, they might stay.
1: That discussion was recorded at last year's Australian Association of Gerontology National Conference in Adelaide. I was talking to Dr. Mike Rungy, Professor Nairi Kurse, Professor Peter Bragg and Dorinda Hafner. You can find out more about them by visiting the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. Until next time, bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.